This is the weekend before Christmas, so we're going to do kind of a Christmas-themed sermon today, and we're calling it The Gift of God. It's Christmas time. We celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, and we give gifts to one another. It's fitting to try to understand what is the gift that God has given us. What is the gift of God, the gift from God to us? Today, We're going to talk about the gift that God gives us. And the baby in a manger changed the way people saw God. This was an amazing situation, you know, 2000 years ago, a baby in a manger. And that event, that piece of God's plan really brings into clear view the way that the world changed in their way of seeing God because of the way God changed and how he revealed himself to people. So we're going to explore that today, the baby in the manger and the gift of God. So I want to start with Matthew 6, 22 and 23. This is a, a scripture that when I first read it really captured my attention. It was really something that kind of took me back and I, I thought about it over and over again. And it's something that's guided me through the years. And so I want to read these verses, Matthew 6, 22 and 23, just to get a grasp of it. It says this, it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And I've got a footnote here. If, you know, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy and there's a footnote, or if your eyes are unhealthy, there's also a footnote there. And it, it says that the Greek word that's translated there, healthy, could also be translated as generous or as, you know, ungenerous in the other one. So if you're unhealthy, not generous, or healthy, generous. And I don't, I don't necessarily think this means willing to give lots of money, but I think if you've looked at somebody with generous eyes, then you can see the good in them. But if you look at somebody with stingy eyes, you don't see the good in them. And so what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 of Matthew 22 and 23, is he's saying that the eye is the lamp of the body. How we see this world will affect what's inside of us, what we perceive. And there might be things out there that we don't see that are beautiful and wonderful and glorious things that we just miss. And that was the thing that, that I grabbed hold of or that grabbed hold of me was, what am I not seeing that if I could only see past the obvious, I could see into the good things of God and what's there that I'm missing? Because the eye is the lamp of the body. I want to have healthy, generous eyes so that I'll be full of light and not be full of darkness. So this is a, a scripture that captivated me from the beginning And there's this spiritual skill of seeing accurately, seeing deeply into the good things of God. This includes how you see yourself, how you see others, how you see this world, how you see your situation, if you're stuck or if you're able to get free. And accuracy 
is vital, that we see the right way is vitally, vitally important. So we want to grab hold of this. And I want to ask this question, how do you see God? What is your internal vision of who God is? In your heart, who do you see God to be? Some people see an angry old man that doesn't really like them very much. And I would say this is an inaccurate picture of God. Some people see God as a fool who can be tricked by religion. You know, I'll, you just do this little loophole, just pray this prayer, just do this ritual. <laughs> that, that takes care of God. Now I can go do whatever I want. God is not a fool that can be tricked by religion. Some people see God as an enabler that can be abused however you want, but who will always take you back. You know, our God is not that weak. He's very forgiving, very loving, but he's not weak. So how do we see God? Sometimes we have trouble seeing God. Maybe you've got some things in the way that, that make it difficult for you to see God in an accurate way. Some people can't see past religion and people, you know, hypocrites and people who have hurt them or these sorts of things. They can't see past religion and people to get to God. They can't see beyond. Some people are caught up in the debates of today. There's all these different debates right now. But if you want to get to the things that really matter, you've got to see past the debates of today into the eternal things of God. Some people are just way too overwhelmed with how, uh, how difficult this life is and uh, just the darkness of this world and all the yuck coming at them and the turmoil on the inside. They're just too overwhelmed to see beyond that into the good things of God. But there's one true God. He's very complex, very wonderful, and very knowable. We can see into the realm of God. We can see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We can know God. If we see God and his plan the right way, then we will understand ourselves. We'll understand our relationship with God in the right way too. So let's look at some essential pictures of God from the scriptures. So these are kind of like snapshots. I see this sermon as kind of flipping the pages of a photo album where you see one picture and it tells one story. Then you see another picture and it tells a different story. And as you look at the different pictures in the photo album, you get a more complete picture of the person that you're looking at. And I want to look at these different pictures of God in the scriptures and try to put them together into a more complete understanding of who God is. So God is very complex, obviously way beyond our ability to fully understand, but there are some things about God that we can understand. And so we want to have our eyes be healthy and generous towards God so that we can understand those things and be full of light. So let's look at some of these snapshots, some of these photos of God and how we can view God through the scriptures. The first one is a baby in a manger. Of course, we're here at Christmas time when we celebrate the birth of Christ. And so I think it's fitting to begin with Luke chapter two and look at this idea of a baby in a manger. What an interesting way to see God as, you know, the savior born a baby in a manger Kind of counterintuitive, but let's read the story from Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 20. 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as had been told them. So, This is the Christmas story, the birth of Christ. We see, you know, a lot of the Christmas story in the verses that we read where you have Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem and Mary and an engaged but unwed, very likely teenaged girl has a baby in the barn, the side barn probably of a house or, you know, just a little barn because there's no guest room, there's no room in the inn, so (laughs) they're in the barn, and the baby is born and wrapped in cloths and set in the feeding trough where the, the animals eat the straw and that sort of thing, the hay, the baby is wrapped up and set in the feeding trough. This is the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. And the announcement is made to some shepherds watching the flock and making sure everything's okay. And the angels and the heavenly hosts appear to these shepherds and tell of the great glories of the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. It's a very interesting picture of who God is. Now, this is Jesus, the Son of God. So we have a complex God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, way deeper and beyond what we can understand. But we see the Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, born of a a teenage mom who is just engaged but not married yet, who uh, doesn't have a place to stay, and the baby's born wrapped in cloth, set in a feeding trough, and some shepherds come by and say, We heard from the angels and the heavenly hosts that the Savior has been born, and they came to to witness this. 
That's really interesting. So different from what people in that day would have had expected of the coming of the Lord. Born in a manger, an unusual, very different reveal for the Savior. So that's one picture, the baby in a manger. Now let's go to a very different picture, and this is the God of Mount Sinai. So this is many, many years before, and the nation of Israel has been enslaved in Egypt, and now God comes and rescues his people through Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, let my people go. And there's a bit of a process there. They get set free. And then God is beginning to teach his people how to be his people. And God appears before the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. So we go to Exodus chapter 19. We'll read verses 16 through 22 and get a snapshot of what's going on here. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. This is millions of people. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. So we see here the appearing of God, very different from baby in a manger. On Mount Sinai, it's like a volcano is erupting, but it's the presence of God coming down. And God is very clear with Moses. You don't let the people just come on up here. They're going to die. You know, I mean, this is an unapproachable, unimaginably powerful, commanding, loud, huge God. Uh, just awesome in, in that true sense of, of being awesome, uh, bringing awe and trembling and fear to the people. A very, very different picture. An untouchable God, powerful beyond comprehension, who then gives holy commands from on high. This is what leads into the giving of the Ten Commandments. So God shows up on Mount Sinai to teach his people how to be his people and to show his power and might and to give them holy commands from on high, the Ten Commandments. This is a powerful, strong God who will not be Shaken, who will not be willing to put up with any mischief or don't approach him in an unworthy manner. None of that. A very strong, powerful God, the God of Mount Sinai. There's our second picture. The next picture is the God of creation, the creator of heaven and earth and the creator of mankind. We'll go to Genesis chapters one and two to look at this. Genesis chapter one, we see that God is the creator of mankind in chapter one, verses 26 and 27. It says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image 
in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God, the creator of mankind, who creates Mankind in his own image, male and female, he creates them. You get more details with the Adam and Eve account there, but this is the, the, the creation. God creates the heavens and the earth and he creates mankind. And then he creates them to have a relationship with them. And so we go to chapter two, which is where it's only Adam at this point. Chapter two, verse 19 This is a snapshot that I think is a beautiful picture of who God the Father is. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. I just think this is a fantastic picture, a snapshot of Almighty God creating the heavens and the earth, the animals and the birds. And then there's Adam created in the image of God, you know, and God is, is showing them all the animals. So I can see just in my mind, I see a, a giraffe coming out and God says to Adam, what do you think of that? And Adam's like, wow, that's cool. What do you want to call it? Ah, giraffe. That's a good name, Adam. Nice work. And then they sit around for a while and just kind of enjoy each other's company. And then God's like, hey, check this out. And then uh, an elephant comes out. He's <laughs> you know, like, whoa, you know, what should we call that? Like, ah, that's an elephant. And he's like, yeah, Adam, good, good job. That's a great name. And just going through that process of sharing his creation with Adam to see, you know, how it would work and, and just what a beautiful picture. And God also created the people to have relationship. And that's where we continue with verse 20 here. We just read 19, now we're on to 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So God created man and woman for relationship as well. We see that beautiful relationship between God and man, and we see the beautiful relationship between husband and wife also. So God is the God of creation, created the heavens and the earth, the animals, and created the people for relationship with him and relationship with each other. So this is the God of creation. And then we have the God of judgment. You don't get very far into Genesis before the beautiful picture starts to change and become something different. So we see that beautiful snapshot of creation. It's very good. Things are going really well. And then everything falls apart. There's the fall of man, Adam and Eve sin. And then it just snowballs from there and gets to be an incredible disaster. And that's what we pick up in Genesis 6, 5 through 8. It says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. 
The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth, the human race I have created and with them, the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we see here that the creation created in the image of God and part of being created in the image of God is with the ability to create as well, creative free will beings. And we can create good or we can create evil. We can speak life or we can speak death. We have the ability to do that. And what happened here was humanity went to all evil all the time. It went from very good in the creation to the fall. And then not just to some good and some bad, but to everything was bad. So we see the judgment of God coming. I said, you know, Moses found favor, but That means that the flood is coming, that only eight people are going to survive and some animals representations are going to survive, but everything else is going to be wiped out. We see a profound judgment from God. One thing I don't want you to miss, though, is the broken heart of God in that judgment. He was grieved. He he regretted. That's an amazing concept. His heart was hurt because of the destruction and the evil and the darkness that the creativity of man brought to the world. So he was hurt. So yes, God as a God of judgment, but don't fail to notice the broken heart of the creator in that judgment. So we've got a baby in a manger, the great and mighty powerful God of Mount Sinai. We've got the God of creation, sharing his creation with Adam and creating people for relationship. And we've got, the God of judgment, seeing the injustice and bringing harsh judgment. And then now another snapshot is the God of the cross. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. And we see a very, very different picture of God from the creator God, from the Mount Sinai God, from the God of judgment. We see here a God willing to sacrifice. So again, our our complex God of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, here we see the sacrifice of the Son, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, making a sacrifice. Matthew 26, 49 through 54 says this. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So we see here a willing sacrifice. Jesus arrested and he is able to call on the power of almighty God, his heavenly father to solve the problem for him. But he understands this is God's plan and he submits to it. So we see a willing sacrifice and a suffering savior. When we go to Mark 15, starting in verse 25, and then we'll 
read 25 through 27 and then 33 through 39 to get a snapshot of this, of the crucifixion. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So we see a savior who dies on the cross. We see a willing sacrifice and a suffering savior. Now we might be used to this idea, but to them in that time, it made no sense whatsoever. Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God and everybody thought he was talking about the nation of Israel and that they were going to kick out the Romans and that Jesus was going to be a profound military and political figure that would bring the nation of Israel back to its prominence. And that would be the establishment of the kingdom. But that wasn't what he was talking about at all. And so when he is actually captured and tried, found guilty and tortured and crucified and killed, it doesn't make any sense at all. They think, you know, this is a very different picture from the God of judgment or the God of Mount Sinai, the one who's powerful and and over everyone. This is a submission to, to sacrifice and suffering and death. The God of the cross might be an idea we're used to, but for them, I tell you, it was like seeing the matrix for the first time. You know, it was a mind blowing, completely foreign concept and another step beyond the baby in a manger. And then we can't talk about the cross without talking about the resurrection. So the God of the cross is also the God of the resurrection. Let's go to John chapter 20. We're going to look at Mary's experience with the risen Christ, 11 through 18. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The God of the resurrection 
Jesus conquered death. He not only submitted to death, but he conquered death, showing his true power as the Savior. Not just the Savior of Israel from Rome, but he's the Savior of all from death. He's the Savior of all mankind, the whole world, saving them from death. That's amazing. So all of these aspects of God help us to understand who God is, understand his plan, and understand who we are. There's one more thing I want to talk about. And this is still, as far as understanding God, is still just the tip of the iceberg. And understanding all of these things is amazingly complex. And in our human understanding, we can, we can get some. But think of how much there actually is compared to how much we can understand. So one more snapshot that I'd like to look at beyond these. Let me mention them already again. We've got the God of the manger, the God of Mount Sinai, the God of creation, the God of judgment, the God of the cross, the God of the resurrection. Now let's talk about our God, who is the God of redemption, the God who redeems. This creator, who was a brokenhearted judge, a powerful lawgiver, revealed as a baby laid in a feeding trough and a divine sacrifice that was once for all raised to life, never to die again. All of these things brought together, paint the picture of redemption, a God of power, justice, and righteousness, but also of humility and love and sacrifice. All aspects of God are reconciled with each other in the plan of redemption. The justice of God, which is in conflict with the mercy and the love of God. The righteousness of God. All of these things come together and are brought into harmony in the plan of redemption. Our God is the God of redemption. And that's where we get our title from Romans 6.23, so we're finally getting to the title of the message. Let me read Romans 6.23. It says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When God created, he had a wonderful plan, but his plan was to include creative free-willed beings who could do their own thing, and he wanted to see how great, they could become, but instead they created death and destruction and evil and it was terrible and it needed to be destroyed. The wages of sin is death because it ruins the plan of God. It ruins the good things, the great creation, the the wonderful things of God are destroyed by our free will when we choose to use it to create evil. So the wages of sin is death. But in the darkest night, a star appears and a child is born. In the darkest night of sin and evil and destruction, maybe you're going through a dark night right now. It's been a hard year. It's been a lot of people worrying, a lot of people in isolation, a lot of people in conflict with other people. It's been a tough year. Maybe this is a dark night for you. But a star appears and a child is born and there's hope. A high price was paid. From John 3.16, John 3.16 is, of course, an iconic, incredible verse, but it begins to inform Romans 6.23. 
The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So we see the motivation for the price that was paid was the love of God for his messed up creation. And this was all done so that our God, your God, could demonstrate to us and then demonstrate through us Romans 12, 21. Romans 12, 21 is just a fantastic, fantastic verse that we see Jesus and the plan of God putting into practice for our benefit, but then we pick it up and we do it too. And it's simply this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the plan of redemption that our evil did not overcome the plan of God to create his kingdom full of intelligent, free-willed, creative beings who could be made in the image of God and rise into who we we're created to be. But instead we slide into the darkness and the, the evil of this world. We're both hit by it and we respond with evil, but that can be redeemed because Jesus paid the price. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus paid the price that we could be bought back, born again, brought into new life and grab hold of the truth of God, even after we've messed it all up. It's the great plan of redemption that evil would not overcome, that we would not be overcome by evil, but we like Jesus overcome evil with good. The gift of God, which is eternal life. It's forgiveness. It's freedom. It's new life. It's everlasting life. The gift of God is paid for and gift wrapped with your name on it. But you have to humble yourself to receive it. Humble yourself like a baby in a manger with nothing to bring but yourself. Jesus demonstrated humility, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, born into a feeding trough, greeted by shepherds. Humble yourself like a baby in a manger. Don't think you have to earn. Don't think you have something to bring to the table except just you. You and who you are, your mess, your doubts, your fears, your sins and failures. Bring that to God and receive this gift by faith. Trusting in the one who loves and sacrificed for you. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's the forgiveness, the freedom, the new life we can have and eternal life. This is a gift you can open New every day, every morning. If you've never opened that gift, you got to open it for the first time. And today's the day. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Let us not have a shallow picture of you, seeing you in, in only one, one way, but Lord, help us to see you in all these amazing complex ways so that we can understand that your plan is wonderful, that it all comes together in the plan of redemption. And that is because you are a just God who loves righteousness, but you also love us and we have failed and sinned, but you redeem us. So Lord, thank you for that great gift. The wages of sin is death, which is what we deserve, but you have set us free because the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for that gift.
If you've never received that gift right now, all you have to do is humble yourself, ask for forgiveness, pledge your life to serve the Lord, to learn his ways and live them out. And then the gift of God is yours. You've been serving the Lord for years and years. Open that gift fresh every day. Thank you, Lord, for redemption. Not just forgiveness, but for being bought back, bought with a price. And Lord, help us all to live a life worthy of the calling that you have given us. Understanding who you are, who we are, and what your plan is. Lord, bless us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.